God, we thank you for helping us to rediscover church this past year. Especially in the midst of the pandemic, it was so easy to forget your identity as our sovereign God and our identity as your redeemed people. We thank you for compelling us to gather together and to commit to sanctifying one another as a spiritual family. And as a gathered church, we praise you for helping us to rediscover what it means to intentionally help one another to follow you and to reveal the gospel together by loving one another just as you have loved us. We also thank you for calling us to remember the gospel of Jesus and to bring it to others. And as a scattered church, we praise you for helping us to rediscover what it means to intentionally share and showcase the gospel to the lost around us and hope that they would put their faith in Jesus as well. And as we move forward this year, may the inevitable effect of rediscovering church this past year be that we as your church would reveal Jesus with our lives and words to one another and to the world around us as individual Christians and collectively as a local church this year. So Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God for his work this past year. Uh, at this time, we're going to hear God's word together. Uh, but before we begin, let me just share a, a couple important notes. Uh, first, uh, the sermon manuscript and handout is available on our website. Just go to jakarta.hmcc.net, and it's right there on the, on the homepage to help you follow along. Uh, second and lastly, let's put aside any distractions as best we can so that we can give our hearts and our minds uh, 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 fully to God's word. Uh, now, now, at this time, I invite Pastor John to preach God's word for us today. Hi, everyone. You can uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. My name is John. I'm at the pastor at HMCC of Tangerang, and it's the, my privilege to preach the word of God for us today. As we're turning to Luke chapter 10, uh, we'll be, today we'll be continuing in the sermon series through the gospel of Luke in order to rediscover Jesus. And for some of us, we may be discovering Jesus for the first time. And so as we go through this series, it's our heart uh, looking into God's word. It's our aim that we learn who Jesus is, we learn about what he did, and we, and we then can learn what it has to do with our lives today. So as we rediscover Jesus, it is also our hope this year that we can better reveal Jesus to those around us in our lives this year. So if you have turned to Luke chapter 10, uh, please follow along as I read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to, to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It's the word of God. Amen. Uh, it's a common understanding that a mission is important for any organization, for any company. A mission is important because a mission of that company or of an organization, it describes their very purpose and reason for existence in the world. So the mission becomes the core identity of who they are, of how they run their organization or their company. And so if I read us some mission statements, even if you've never heard of the company's mission statement before, you'll be able to easily identify which company or organization it belongs to. So we'll just do a quick exercise. I'll read a mission statement, um, and then you can just guess which one it is. Uh, first, start off with a really easy one. To offer a wide range of well-designed, functional home furnishing products at a price is so low that as many people as possible will be able to afford them. Yeah, that's easy, right? Um, moving along. Let's, get, let's jump to a little bit harder one, okay? Eh, no, no. They're all easy. So the point is they're all easy and then you can figure it out, okay? Next one. To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Yeah. And part of their inspiration is Everybody is an athlete, right? Uh, next one, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Wow, somebody was really fast there. I heard it. Okay, last one. Spread ideas, foster community, and create impact. Uh, TED Talks, that's what they are famous, uh, famously known for. And so the, the idea is a mission identifies an organization it, because it describes their very purpose and reason for existence. Even their workers buy into the mission. They believe in their mission. They're passionate about their mission. They're excited about their mission, along with the rest of the company or organization. And a worthy mission is, is so attractive to people because all of us, we actually desire a sense of identity, a deep sense of identity and worthy purpose in our lives. For the church, the mission of Jesus Christ identifies us as Christians. The mission of Christ is the very reason for our existence. But often, as workers of God's kingdom, we can easily lose our passion and excitement for the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. We become easily distracted and easily focused on our own personal missions, own personal desires and pursuits of the world. But God, knowing the conditions of our hearts, there are moments that God graciously helps us along. God opens our eyes and wakes us up within us a deep desire for his great work of transforming lost people into Christ's disciples who will then transform the world. 
So then if we truly understand what our Lord's mission is, we too can become so passionate about it. We can be so excited about our mission. It's the greatest mission that people can be brought into. It's the greatest mission anyone can carry out. And so all the more, we must understand what our mission is and then strive together in it to work together, to labor together in the mission we have been given by our Lord Jesus Christ. So the one thing for us today is this. Labor together in the Lord's mission, proclaiming the peace and judgment of God's kingdom. Labor together in the Lord's mission, proclaiming the peace and judgment of God's kingdom. We'll look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16 in three parts, looking at how Jesus sends out uh, his disciples. We'll look at Jesus' specific instructions that he gave, and then draw out the principles to apply how we can carry out the work in the Lord's mission today. So first, we'll look at how Jesus appointed disciples to his harvest mission, verses 1 to 3. Second, Jesus, how Jesus assured disciples of his kingdom peace, verses 4 to 9. And third, how Jesus alerted disciples about his coming judgment, verses 10 to 16. Could you bow your heads with me one more time as I pray for the preaching of God's word? Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for this privilege and this time to hear from your word again. Look into your word. And, and we need to hear from you because, Lord, you have set us on, as a church, a great mission, a worthy mission that we all should be passionate about, excited about. A worthy mission where we find a deep sense of identity and purpose for our lives. But Lord, we confess our hearts are not always in that condition. And so Lord, we pray that you'll speak to us. Teach us what your mission is. How we can get involved. And all the more how we can serve you, work for you, our Lord, our, our Savior. So teach us, Lord. Have your way in us at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, Jesus appointed disciples to his harvest mission. Let's read verse 1 again. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. We see here that the Lord appointed 72 others on his mission. And the question is, who are these others? Looking at the context uh, in scripture, we'll see that these 72 others are other disciples of Jesus. And they're referred to as others there because they're being compared to another group of his disciples. The group that the 72 are being compared with are the 12, the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, and they were appointed to a unique task to later lead the first generation of disciples, the first generation of churches after Jesus ascended into heaven. Not only that, each apostle was appointed by name. From among all of his disciples, Jesus chose each apostle one by one. So unlike the 12 apostles, the 72 others were nameless, everyday, regular disciples. Definitely doesn't sound as cool or as impressive. Would you want to be part of a group called the 12 or be part of something called 72 others. The 12 could be, could be a title of a movie. The 72 others, it just sounds like a list of forgotten names and unimportant people. 
But the reality is, this is not the case when Jesus, the Lord of lords, and the King of all kings, is the one appointing you. Yes, the 72 were nameless, regular disciples, but they were still disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They find their worth and value in the worth and value of the one who is appointing them. And so these disciples, though they were nameless, they were greatly honored by the Lord as they had the privilege of being personally appointed by him to go to every place that Jesus himself was going to go. In fact, the work that the 72 will be doing is the same kind of work that the 12 were doing earlier at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9 verses 1 through 6, we saw how Jesus sent out the 12 for the same work we see here in Luke chapter 10 with a summary of instructions that are nearly identical to that, uh, to the instructions there. So this means that in principle, the mission of Jesus Christ is for all disciples of Jesus to participate in, not just, with those, not just for those with unique titles. So this reminds us that the work of ministry is not done only by the pastors or the leaders of the church. The work of Jesus' mission is not only for those who have specific titles or positions in churches or Christian organizations. But Jesus appoints every one of his disciples by name, personally, to participate in his mission. This truth also reminds me as a pastor that I am not excused from what Jesus appointed every disciple to do. Just because I have a specific job title and a unique church job description, I cannot excuse myself. Also, along with life group leaders, ministry team leaders, Ministry PICs, interns, deacons, no one can excuse themselves. Just because people serve in a ministry team on Sunday does not mean they can excuse themselves. None of us can excuse ourselves, even if we do have a certain title. None of us are excused from the work of Jesus' mission that we will see here. To be clear, yes, there is a unique role given to a missionary to do missions work. Missionaries are those sent out for cross-cultural work where they go and live among a foreign people, learning their language, learning their culture for the sake of preaching the gospel to them because otherwise they would have no access to the gospel. Not everyone will be called a missionary for missions work like this, but the reality still remains that the whole church, all believers, all disciples of Christ are appointed to Jesus' mission. He calls all disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So all of us, as disciples, share in this mission together. And it's a great privilege and honor that we have from the Lord. If it's still difficult for us to see that being appointed to the Lord's mission is a privilege, there is one more reason why. Being appointed to this mission is a great privilege, not only because it's the Lord himself appointing us, but it's a great privilege because we are also saved by the Lord in his mission. As disciples, we're not only appointed to his mission, but we are also appointed to salvation. This was Jesus' mission on earth. He said it himself. The very reason why he was going to all these towns and villages, his mission statement was this, to seek and save the lost to seek and save the lost. Our Lord Jesus came from his heavenly throne on a mission to enter into our sinful, broken world and to seek out sinners. Even when we were not 
looking for him, even though when we didn't care about God and the things of God, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save such undeserving sinners through his own death on the cross, paying for our punishment that we should have paid under God's wrath. So that whoever would believe in him, repent of their sins, and follow Jesus as his disciple into his mission would be forgiven of their sins and be saved. Jesus, our Lord, did all of this for us on his mission to save us. We don't deserve to be appointed, but we were appointed and chosen by the riches of God's grace. We were not worthy of his mission but yet we were appointed. We were not worthy of salvation, yet we were chosen. In our appointing, we have received the infinite worth and value and honor from our Lord. And when we internalize this, then we will be able to, we will be able to humbly and joyfully see it is truly a privilege to be sent. Because those who are sent are only those who have received the privilege to be saved. So with this, may we go and participate willingly in the Lord's mission, no matter what it will look like and no matter what he will ask of us. We need to have this kind of heart along with these disciples as we continue on, reading verses 2 and 3. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So now after appointing the 72 others, other disciples, Jesus describes the difficult reality of the mission that they will face. Two descriptions here. The first description is in verse 2, telling them how discouraging this mission is. Jesus uses the image of the harvest season. So imagine with me the work of farmers for for. Weeks and months, farmers have worked the ground, preparing it, plowing the ground, preparing it to uh, receive the seed. They sow the seeds and they watch over the crops, becoming ripe and ready for harvest. And finally, the harvest time would come where they could reap their harvest, gathering all that they have grown. It could be a field of grain or field of rice or a field of fruit. And the harvest time would be such a joyful time, a time of celebration, because there is food to eat and food to celebrate with. The only way the harvest time would not be joyful and instead discouraging is if the laborers are few. Harvest time requires a larger team of workers to bring in all the grain and uh, all the rice, all the fruit, and without many laborers, it would be a shameful loss of not being able to harvest all that was grown. It would be a great loss to see fields and fields that are ripe for harvest become spoiled and rotten and just needed to be thrown away. And so the mission is discouraging because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As Christians, we must confess when we live by the complete opposite of what Jesus said. Often we live as if the laborers are plentiful, but the harvest is few. We don't feel the sense of urgency to be personally involved, to say, Lord, here am I, send me into your mission. We think other Christians can do the work of laboring while we can sit back and watch and take care of other things in our lives. But the reality is that the harvest is still plentiful today as it was back then. 
We have millions of people in our cities today, in Jakarta, Tangerang, who have not heard the truth about Jesus and therefore have not been given the opportunity to believe in the gospel that could truly save them from their sins. And sometimes by God's grace, when we confront the huge, vast numbers of the plentiful harvest, when we see the great need of people who, will, who are suffering through life without the hope that we have, when we realize how many people actually will die and go to hell because they do not believe, because they have never heard the gospel. Sometimes seeing the desperate need of the lost, of the plentiful harvest, will be enough motivation for us to do something about it. By God's grace, it's enough to move us to go serve and meet their needs. It's enough to move us to start a spiritual conversation and lead that com conversation from the surface to the serious and to then to share about Jesus Christ. But for the majority of the time, when we struggle to be motivated to go into the harvest, what should we do? Jesus provides that instruction as he immediately uh, instructs the disciples to pray. Jesus calls the disciples to specifically pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. The phrase here actually means to, more to plead and beg with urgency. It's not a neutral, calm request. It's a desperate crying out for the Lord. Lord, please do something about this plentiful harvest. Lord, we beg you, send out laborers into your harvest. Call and convict your disciples, all Christians in this city, with this great burden. Send them, thrust them, call them out into your harvest. We've been talking about how fasting fuels our prayers with biblical prior priorities as we feast on God's word. The harvest is clearly one great biblical prior priority. It's on the heart of our Lord. So especially as we are continuing to fast as a church this week, pray this prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his plentiful harvest. And as you do, I believe God will give you his love, his compassion, more than just knowledge, but a deep heart's desire for the harvest. So that as we pray, and as Jesus says, go, we'll say, of course, Lord. As Jesus sends us out with desperate prayer into his mission, the discouraging reality can turn into hope. The discouraging reality that the laborers are few can turn into a hope and, and a true longing to see the harvest come in, a desire to, and a hunger to see new salvations and new baptisms of new brothers and sisters in Christ this year. Oh, let it be, Lord, in our churches that we may experience, desire for this and experience the harvest come in. The second description in verse 3 tells us how dangerous the mission is. Jesus is sending out disciples as lambs in the midst of wolves. So just picture weak, helpless, not even adult sheep, but baby lambs being sent into a pack of wolves that would completely overpower them, completely devour them. Lambs are utterly defenseless, even before just one wolf. 
But he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And Jesus uses this illustration to describe the persecution that disciples will face on his mission. It's a difficult task because there's persecution at hand. Persecution for us as Jesus' disciples might mean physical harm, as it does for many Christians, as it did for many Christians throughout history, and as it continues to mean physical harm around the world today. For Christians who will suffer physically for, be, for their faith in Christ. But for many of us here today, we may face persecution socially and relationally, maybe being excluded from certain opportunities because of our faith. We may be hated and excluded and insulted because of our faith in Jesus. But whatever the form of persecution, Jesus teaches us to expect persecution. Not only here, but because he has taught his disciples that a disciple is not above his master. And if Jesus, our Lord, was persecuted in his mission, so we will also face persecution in his mission. To be clear, Jesus' disciples were persecuted not because they believed in Jesus, not because of an internal faith in Jesus. That's not why they were persecuted. Disciples of Jesus were and are persecuted because they boldly speak about Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as Lord and Savior of all. So the question for every disciple of Jesus Christ here is this. Have you personally experienced persecution in any of these ways? If not, I can suggest one reason. Maybe because you have not yet spoken about Jesus out in the harvest. It may be because as lamb among wolves, we end up pretending to be like wolves just to fit in with everybody. We end up being influenced by the ways and beliefs and desires of this world rather than persuading them to believe in the truths that we believe in, the truth of Jesus Christ that will lead them to salvation. I'm not saying that we try our best to get people to persecute us because that's not what Jesus is talking about. I'm not trying to guilt us in, about this. But I just desire what Jesus expects for us to experience if we rightly live in his mission, in his harvest. As we speak about Jesus lovingly to others, there will be times by God's grace that people listen and respectfully tell us they're not interested. But still, we should expect persecution. And so therefore, I'm speaking this challenge to myself. As I've shared before, I have never personally experienced such persecution in all my life. And so I need to continue to reflect and evaluate my approach to the lost in the harvest. I'm not excused from that just because I'm a pastor. Yes, I could boldly preach in the church these truths. But in my personal approaches, I often shy away from the opportunities that God gives me to speak the truth, yes, in love, but also in boldness to those in the harvest. So all the more, I see this is why Jesus instructs disciples to go two by two, together as fellow lambs, as fellow partners in the mission. We go two by two for encouragement because there are discouragements in the mission. We go two by two supporting one another because there is danger 
of persecution. We go two by two for accountability, helping one another to be faithful to the mission, to remind one another and ask for reminders, to check in on each other. Hey, when's the last time you had a spiritual conversation with an unbeliever? I didn't get any opportunities this week, or I shied away from opportunities this week. And we can say, well, all right, let's try again. Let's try again this week. Remind me. Let me re- help me to remind, uh, help, let me remind you. Help to remind me. And so that two by two reminds us there are, we have fellow partners in this mission. Just look around in this church. We are fellow lambs sent out in the midst of wolves. We are appointed together for salvation by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Appointed together on his mission into the harvest. And so we need one another to be faithful. Because that is how Jesus designed our partnership as he sends us out. So first, that's how uh, we see how Jesus appointed disciples into his harvest mission. Next, we'll see how Jesus assured disciples with his kingdom peace. Let's read verses 4 to 8. Jesus says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So the first thing we note here in these verses is that there are a lot of specific instructions. And if disciples are not writing this down somewhere, they might forget. Jesus says, don't carry this, don't do that, stay there, eat that, say this. And there are a lot of instructions, and I have to tell you right now, we don't have the time to go into depth of all the details. But for now, we can just understand that these instructions are like a manual for the 72 disciples. As Jesus appointed and sent them out for the very first time, so they needed the step-by-step guidance. However, as disciples, we should not get caught up in all the details, but see the bigger picture of how they all fit together. In this way, I think Jesus is giving the disciples specific instructions for the bigger picture that they are appointed and sent on this difficult yet urgent mission. And so the big picture is they need to trust in the Lord. The big picture here is that they need to be assured in the Lord, in what He will provide. And here we'll see that He provides them His peace. Let me explain. Jesus' instructions for this mission are for disciples to learn how to trust in the Lord, that they won't lack anything if they trust in Him. They will be provided with all that they need to carry out on his mission. Even without bringing money or supplies, the Lord will provide for them food and drink. As they labor in the harvest with urgency, the Lord will provide for their accommodations. They don't need to be stopping on the road for chit-chat. Not to be rude, but because they they should be so focused on this mission to get into the homes of people. And in receiving their accommodations, they did not need to go shopping around looking for better accommodations. They didn't need any of these things that would otherwise distract them from from his mission. 
For us today, we too can be easily distracted if we miss out on the bigger picture of what it means to trust in the Lord as we go out on his mission. We're distracted if we trust in finances or supplies or resources or equipping or training or curriculum, any other accommodations to carry out Jesus' mission. To be clear, yes, these things can be used for God's kingdom. Resources, finances, training, equipping, all of these can be helpful. But there will be a distraction if our trust is placed in these things. Only when we are our trust is secure in Jesus Christ, knowing that whether in, in what we have or what we don't have, as long as we trust that the Lord will provide as we go, as we see the needs of the plentiful harvest, and as he sends us, as we go on his mission, these things will be provided for us. So Jesus' disciples needed to know what they really need and learn to surrender what is not absolutely necessary. So what is it, what is the one thing that these 72 disciples ultimately needed? And it's, some, it's something that they already had. And so this is the one thing I want to highlight in these verses. What the disciples needed was the very peace of God that they were offering to others. They needed the peace that Jesus offers to sinners like us in his kingdom. And because they already had peace in Jesus Christ, they had already everything that they needed. Let me explain. You know, peace in the world is just about a temporary rest from conflict, a, a, just a moment free of disturbance. As a parent, I desire such moments of peace throughout the day, but it's still a temporary peace. The peace Jesus offers is unlike anything of this world. The Bible talks about peace specifically in the context of our relationship with God because as sinners, we had no peace with God. Our sinfulness cannot mix, cannot interact with God's holiness. If we enter into his presence, we would be rightfully crushed and punished because God is that holy and we are not. And so our sin created this huge wall of hostility between us and God. And we had no hope for a relationship with him until God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to us. That's why at Jesus' birth, the angels came in the multitudes declaring praise, praises, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. True peace, peace with God was offered to those who believe in Jesus that he died for our sins. Scripture says Jesus himself is our peace who broke down that dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace who reconciled us to God through the cross. And so by faith in Jesus, we are no longer hostile enemies of God, but we become sons of peace in a beautiful story of adoption. God, our peace, becomes our father, and we become his sons, all of us who believe in him. And so as we have received his peace, we can be also, as we are assured in his peace, through the difficulties and through the trials, even though we, when we feel like we don't have enough to go into the harvest, we can be assured. We can also be assured that Jesus will save people through our efforts 
in the harvest. Here he assures that the disciples' labor of faith will not be in vain. That is true for us today. It will not be for nothing. Our efforts in the harvest as we continue to offer peace to those who remain hostile to God. Every prayer we pray for the lost in our lives, he will hear and he will act according to his good will. And so we can trust him. No matter how far from salvation our loved ones might be, we can trust that as we have become sons of peace, that they too can be saved. If we were so lost and God came, sought us out to, to save us from our sins, to be, make us sons of peace, we can be assured that many others will be saved and become sons of peace with us. So brother and sister in Christ, as you go into the harvest, trust in Jesus. Rest assured in Jesus. Because God did not spare Jesus Christ, his son, but gave him up for us all, we can trust that God will graciously give us all things in his harvest. As we go out on his mission into the harvest, we can be assured that God is and will use our faithful efforts, offering his peace, that we'll see many more become sons of peace in the kingdom of God. So with this assurance, we can learn to persevere in our efforts in the harvest, to persevere in revealing Jesus to them this year, throughout this entire year, to persevere in revealing Jesus. We see our theme of revealing Jesus even just in verse 9 by itself, how we are to be revealing Jesus with our lives and with our words. It's, it's, we see it when Jesus says to his disciples, heal the sick in the town. This could mean a sudden miraculous healing, either for physical healing, for physical uh, conditions, or spiritual healing for spiritual conditions through the casting out of demons. But, the, but heal the sick doesn't always have to mean miraculous healing like this. It can also mean helping someone recover in health and in other difficulties through normal, regular means of taking care of them. So today, there might be certain moments as we pray for healing, God chooses to miraculously heal for the sake of opening their hearts to receive the gospel. But for most of the time, God will open hearts through our regular service of love and care for those around us. As we go out to reach the broken, as we go out to care for those who are unwanted by others in society, as they wonder why we are doing all of this good for them, when they see that they are benefiting at our expense, that we are choosing to pay the cost that they may benefit from us, they will ask. And so we see that good works have a good place in our gospel witness to share the good news. Because as we bless, bless people with good works, revealing Jesus with our lives, it will be a meaningful context for revealing Jesus with our words. And so in those moments, with great assurance, we should not let that opportunity pass by. And we can reveal Jesus with our words. We can, with great assurance, we can tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We can explain that God desires to save people and bring them into his kingdom. We can proclaim to them the gospel of peace. We can offer the peace of God to them. That is not, that is not achieved by what they do or by their religious performance. But we could say that, it, that we could explain to them that it is by God's grace. We can lovingly persuade and plead with them that they must repent of their sins and believe in the gospel to be saved. So as fellow 
workers and laborers in the harvest. Look, where do you see brokenness around you in your life? Go and do good works. Meet needs of people. Bring healing and restoration to that broken place, to those broken people, trusting that you have all that you need because you have the peace of God. So, we saw how Jesus appointed disciples. We saw here how Jesus assured his disciples. And lastly, we'll see how Jesus alerted his disciples about his coming judgment. After being assured that many people will receive them and the gospel of peace, Jesus makes sure his disciples know that many others, even entire towns, will reject them and their message. We already saw earlier as, dis as disciples are sent out as lambs among wolves. So as disciples speak of Jesus, we will face persecution because people will reject our message. And so here Jesus alerts disciples of what will happen when people reject them and the gospel. Jesus says in verses 10 to 11, he says this, <clears throat> But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, this is such a strange phrase for us because it's out of the context of our culture. Wiping your dust off, wiping your dust off my feet was a symbol in that culture, as a symbol of judgment for those who rejected the offer of, the king, of kingdom peace a symbol of judgment for those who did not repent of their sins to receive Jesus as their king. We have no symbol like this for us today, but it was appropriate during that time. The disciples were not to use this sign to be hateful or insulting or offensive against people because, again, they were not to be like wolves, but they were instructed to be like lambs even in rejection. And so this was a sign of separation. It was a sign of dissociation, a sign that correctly communicated that Jesus has no relationship with those who reject his gospel. It's a sign that the rejectors want nothing to do with Jesus, and therefore Jesus has no relationship with them. And if they Was I? Oh, okay. Thank you. It's a sign that they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and therefore Jesus has no relationship with them. And if they have no relationship with Jesus, who is our peace and who took away the hostility of our sin, then all that these rejectors could expect from God is the coming judgment. So that's why this was an appropriate sign. This is how the gospel of peace that we proclaim is both good news and bad news. It's good news for those who receive it, who enter into God's kingdom as sons of peace. But for those who reject it, it is really bad news. Proclaiming of the gospel then becomes a pronouncement of judgment, that judgment is coming soon. We don't know when, but Scripture says that final judgment of every person on the earth is coming soon. 
For those who have faith, those who have repented and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that day of judgment will be a glorious day. Because as we stand before God in his heavenly courtroom, Jesus will come to stand in our defense, saying that the penalty and the punishment of our sins have been fully paid for by his own blood. And so it will be a joyful day of celebration when we enter into eternity to be with Jesus forever in heaven. But for those who reject Jesus on that and, have, will, and remain rejectors of Jesus till that day, they will remain sinners, defenseless before God's wrath, and they will rightfully receive the punishment for sins, the eternal torment of hell and separation from God forever. For such people, for the rejectors, the harvest will not be a joyful time, but a terrifying one. We see in the book of Revelation, it uses harvest language, not only for salvation, but it uses harvest language also for judgment. It says that when the harvest of the earth is ripe, when the time comes, like grapes, people who do not believe in Jesus will be gathered and then thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Jesus explains this kind of disaster and destruction that is coming for them. That's why Jesus says in verses 12 to 15, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom was a city infamous for their wickedness and sinfulness and sexual immorality. They were known for their moral abomination. If you can imagine the worst of the worst of the worst of all people in one city, it was Sodom. And because of their immorality, their wickedness, we know from Genesis chapter 19 that God, in his rightful judgment, in his holy wrath, sent down sulfur and fire from heaven. And he destroyed the wicked city of Sodom, turning it into ashes. And so Sodom became a metaphor for the severity and the seriousness of God's wrath. The severity and the seriousness of judgment of the judgment of God against sinners. Other cities of Tyre and Sidon are also mentioned. It only adds to that there were pagan cities, only adding to the fact that there's judgment against such cities who reject God. Sodom, Tyre, Sidon were cities symbolizing God's coming judgment. We don't have a sign like wiping the dust off of our feet, your dust off of our feet today. We don't have cities that serve as symbols of God's wrath, but we have the cross of Jesus Christ. His cross shows us how terrible the judgment of God can be. As Jesus hung on the cross with nail pierced into his hands and in his feet, with a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, he hung there gasping for breath, bleeding and suffering, agonizing pain. Jesus did not deserve the cross, but he willingly took the cross up for us to save us. So to those who receive, we know our judgment has been taken away because Jesus took it upon himself. But for those who reject Jesus, the cross remains as a symbol of what kind of judgment is waiting for them. So we point to the cross of Jesus. We lovingly, patiently 
persuade and warn people of God's coming judgment that if they do not believe, if they do not receive this message that the kingdom of God has come near, if they do not believe in Jesus as the only way for salvation, they can expect such horror and terror of the cross coming for them. There are a few other cities mentioned here that were not pagan cities. The cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are Jewish, city, Jewish cities in the region of Galilee. These are cities where Jesus did many miracles, where he frequently visited throughout his mission. But they also did not receive the gospel. Not out of immorality, but out of religiosity. Their religion hindered them from receiving Jesus and responding in repentance their hope was in how well they carried out the rules of their religion. And so it would be shocking for any person in these cities to hear Jesus also pronouncing judgment over them, over a religious people who took pride in their religious devotion to God. So the severity and seriousness of the coming judgment also serves not as a warning of judgment for those who reject, outright reject because of, of their sinfulness. The coming judgment, the seriousness and the severity of the coming judgment also serve as a test for those of us who think we are safe because of our work, because of our religious performance, because of devotion to our religion. These words of judgment serve as a test for anyone who thinks they are safe apart from Jesus. Even when, those good, even when those things are good things, we must not think we are safe because we identify as a Christian on our ID cards or, or that fact that we go to church every week or that we even serve in different ministries. We must not put our hope in these things, thinking we are safe by doing them, safe from God's judgment by doing them. None of these things will provide for us salvation. And everything apart from faith alone, in Christ alone, means the judgment is still coming for us. For those who think well of themselves, who feel secure and safe in their own righteousness, in their self-righteousness that they work for themselves, Jesus says to them, will you be exalted to heaven by all these things that you do? No, you will be brought down to hell. Even if we think we're not so bad, for whatever ways that we compare ourselves to others in our self-righteousness, we cannot take this warning lightly because according to Jesus, the guilt of rejecting the message of peace and rejecting God's kingdom is the same guilt of outright sinfulness, if not greater. For all of us, we need to remember Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came not to call the righteous who think they don't need a physician, but Jesus came for sinners, for those who know that they're spiritually sick and in need of a Savior. So for those of us here who have yet to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not yet received his gospel of peace, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. As you put your trust in Jesus Christ, taking your trust away from all other things, forsaking sin and the desires of our flesh, I hope you can see how much Jesus 
was and is willing to do so that you will come to hear and receive this message of peace. That he himself came to sinners like us by his grace to die on the cross when we didn't deserve it. I hope you also see Jesus is willing to send out his own beloved disciples as lambs in the midst of wolves just so that you could hear the gospel and just so that you could see the gospel lived out. Also that you would come to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So if you choose to believe in Jesus today, please tell someone in this church. We'll love to help you affirm your faith and guide you with the next steps. As you see Christ, escape the coming judgment as you trust in Jesus alone. And for the believers here, again, our mission identifies us as Christians and the very purpose of our existence. We are ambassadors of Christ, Scripture explains to us, meaning, again, that the Lord wants to use our lives and our words to reveal himself to all those in the harvest. And that's why Jesus says, as, he closes, as we close out in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him, our Heavenly Father, who sent me. What an honor. What a privilege. There is no Christian who is not called to the work of Lord's mission. There is no Christian who is not sent out into the plentiful harvest. The work we have is the privilege, the work we have is the privilege of, that we have the privilege of doing. Yes, it's an urgent work. Yes, it's a difficult work, often a discouraging and dangerous work, but it is a matter of people coming to life or remaining in death. It's a matter of people going to heaven or going to hell. So I pray that we will all run as God sends us out into the plentiful harvest. That we will say, Lord, send me. And the Lord is surely sending us all. As we close, here are a few ways that we can apply God's word this week. First, reflect. There are a lot of hard truths that, that God's word has, has spoken to us today. So please take time to reflect. Do not let these truths pass by. Ask yourself, how would my life be different if these truths were a reality in my life? Well, and as we reflect, if God shows us there's apathy that remains in our hearts to God's mission, we can turn to God's word, have God's word continue to speak to our numb hearts. And as we look into God's word, as we continue to, to treasure what he has done, we'll see that we are all saved by his grace and also sent on his mission. So as we reflect, and in those ways that we have, uh, we can repent of the ways that we have excused ourselves from the Lord's mission. The ways that we've said, well, I'll just sit back and see everybody else do the work. I have other things to take care of. Let's repent of our lack of passion and urgency of taking up the call. But as we repent, let's also rejoice in the grace of our Lord, remembering that by his grace, he appointed us, not by anything we have done, he appointed us for salvation. And therefore, he appointed us, and giving us peace, he has appointed us for his mission. And so lastly, 
recommit. Recommit to pray earnestly and go faithfully into his harvest. Pray earnestly this week, crying out to the Lord. And I pray that together we'll be saying, Lord, send laborers into your harvest, your plentiful harvest. It's discouraging, but Lord, turn our discouragement into hope as we go. And may this year be the year of harvest for many more souls as we proclaim the gospel of peace, as we warn people of God's coming judgment. May this year be a a year of harvest where we'll see new salvations, new baptisms of new brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we live out and apply the word this week, remember the one thing again, labor in our Lord's harvest mission, proclaiming the peace and judgment of God's kingdom. Let me close us out in prayer as, and then invite Pastor Eric to lead us in response. Father, we thank you for your grace. What a privilege, Lord, to be appointed for your mission, knowing that we were also graciously appointed unto salvation out of the riches of your love, mercy, and grace, you have called us into a relationship with you. Jesus, as our peace, you have removed the hostility as you died on the cross for our sins. Will you stir our hearts, O Lord? Stir our hearts and our affections with passion and urgency to go out into your harvest and forgive us, Lord, for the many times we have excused ourselves Because those who do not believe in Jesus, the wrath of God and your judgment is coming for them. For their salvation, for the plentiful harvest, send us, Lord. Call us, convict us, and may we go in faith so that this year will be a harvest year. Do this in our lives. Do this in our hearts. Do this in our church. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.